I'm Joyce Hornady. You might say accuracy is my business. I make bullets. You are listening to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hornady Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Swerzik. Thanks for tuning in today. We have another great guest on the show, a familiar voice, a familiar face to the show. Join me in welcoming Jeff Seward back to the podcast. Jeff, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me again. Uh, Much appreciated. Yeah, we love having you on. And as it turns out, our listeners love having you on. When we look back at the podcast that you've been on up to now, those downloads, those listens, those shares, the comments, the interaction, everything is good. And I think what that really shows us is there is a big population of shooters that is hungry for technical information. and you're you're a great resource for that. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, I'm excited about today's topic because, and we'll talk about this during the podcast. But you've had a a, a career that spans what thirty some years in ballistic study from small cow to large cow, medium cow, all of these things, and you've got this incredible depth of knowledge about several different topics. And our last one was cartridge cases, and this one, I feel like there's not even dogma, there's just straight up lack of understanding on how barrels work and their properties and the interaction. So before we yeah, ramble on too too long, let's dive right into barrels and, and what you know and what you've learned about barrels. Yeah. So barrels barrels are basically a, it's a it's a thick wall pressure vessel mm-hmm. and how you do it, how you make it, how you design it, how you the materials from which you choose to make it all are decided by the application sure that that's 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 the thing driving the bus so the kind of the world that i came from one of the primary considerations was lightweight sure and that's you know that's uh, increasingly important for Folks who are hunting in the mountains, you know, oh, yeah. you don't want to lug around a big old heavy thing and you're willing to pay the penalty when it comes time to pull the trigger. Right. So, so, but, you know, uh, fatigue life is a kind of a big consideration. Um, for, for other systems that I was involved with, that wasn't the primary concern. Things like the uh, M- M242, Mark 44, those, those, those guns had barrels made out of different materials because fatigue life wasn't the primary consideration. So those guns, the rifling would crap out on those guns pro- way prior to mm. having a having a concern about fatigue life. So um, over the years, I've been to different places, seen medium cal guns made with um, with brooch gain twist with a brooch stack. I've seen um, Small cal barrels made with just button rifling, uh, seen hammer forging, mm-hmm. seen electrochemical machining, seen a lot of different things over the years. So uh, we're going to talk about a good chunk of these. Yeah, I'm excited to, and, to, to and, hear about them. Yeah. So so in terms of barrel materials, we've got a list here, 4140, 4150. That's kind of the standard go-to for for barrel, uh, barrel materials for machine guns and the like. Um, stainless. 416 stainless is a, is a good standby stainless you got to worry a little bit more about what you put on it for uh, protective coating oh, sure you know um, so that's a little different different uh, 
thought anyway. Yeah, and that's, you know, for us here, you know, oh, we're going to buy a barrel for a match gun. We usually get stainless. Right. Yep. And as long as you're not trying to hide it from somebody, you're good. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Um, the other other materials, so so the I, I've got here listed D6AC. That's the material. That's a tool steel. Oh, and, okay. and that's what the 242 and the 25 millimeter 242 and the uh, Mark 44 30 millimeter guns barrels are made from. Okay. So that that takes a different sort of approach in terms of um, machining. Yeah, for sure. Very and, hard material. And, and we'll and we'll talk about that a little bit further on. Um, composite barrels. You know, so if you have a uh, a liner that's steel and you composite over wrap it because some things you need to worry about. Do you have an insulator, for instance, between the steel and the, especially if it's a carbon fiber composite, that's a semiconductor. And if you're not insulating it, you have to worry about, about corrosion Ooh. Electro, from, a, from an electrical standpoint. So Interesting. That's, that's, that's something that a some guys just haven't thought of. Right. So that's that's another another thing that you have to worry about. Um from a mechanical perspective, that that composite overwrap has roughly the density of plastic and the elastic modulus of aluminum. Are you gaining from a barrel stiffness standpoint? I don't think so. And that may explain some some of the targeting issues with some of the composite wrap mm-hmm. barrels. Okay. So so they yeah they're they're not as heavy and the heavy plays into it from a recoil perspective, and then bending stiffness. If if it's if it's um, doesn't have as much bending modulus as steel, it's gonna not point as consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you get so, barrel pointing variability. Yes. Yes, and we'll talk. We're gonna we're gonna cover barrel pointing variability. Okay, <clears throat> okay. Desirable properties: um, yield strength at room temperature and elevated temperatures. So, so one of the reasons that that the two forty two and the Mark forty four use the D six AC is it has really good high yield strength at elevated temperatures. So that's one of the reasons that manufacturer uses those those steels. Uh, ultimate strength, yeah, you, you want to make sure that it doesn't yield when when it's not supposed to. Elongation right. of failure. So that's elongation of failure versus ultimate strength. Those are kind of um, competing competing properties. You mm-hmm. know, the when you get higher ultimate strength, you usually sacrifice elongation at failure. Okay. Yeah, and, and that... With reduction in elongation and failure, you suffer when it comes to fatigue life. Okay. And um, there's a, we'll cover that as well. Grain structure, I, I didn't have anything particular there. Um, let's go on. Yeah, but you need a, a material that is strong enough to be that pressure vessel without rupturing. And if you're going to fire extended burst lengths, you need something that doesn't melt easily. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So the, yeah, the, so the thermal load, thermal. Let's talk a little bit about the thermal load. Yeah. How long is your barrel good for? What's the barrel life? Depends on a few things. It depends on a lot of things, and it's mostly it's mostly 
schedule related. But from a heating perspective, you fire the fire a cartridge and the temperature of the surface, the interior surface of the barrel goes up about a thousand degrees Fahrenheit in one millisecond. So that's a million degrees per second Whoa. heat input rate. So it's kind of it's kind of a small wonder that they work as long as they do. It's amazing they work at all when you put it that way. <laughs> right, right. So that's just another another perspective of of that that particular event. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't think a lot of people really appreciate the people on a single shot. People don't. So let's say your barrel lasts for six thousand rounds, one millisecond per shot. It's about six seconds. Wow. That's about, that's about six seconds. That right there is mind-altering. I've never thought of it that way. Most people don't. But when you, when you, yeah, when you use some simple math like that, that does make right. plenty of sense. Right. And then you think, you know, take a six Creedmoor, for example. And I've ran six Creedmoors competitively. And you get on a PRS stage and you can burn down 10 rounds in less than a minute and a half. And that, I pull my six Creed barrels off at 1,000 rounds. That, and that barrel is pretty doggone hot when you're done with it. It is, yep. And we don't treat them nice either. So it's amazing things work at all and you hit what you're aiming at. Right, right. So, you know, kind of over the years, worked on a bunch of different barrels, different calibers, you know, um, 50 cal, 762, 5.56, uh, 30 millimeter, um, just just a pile of different things. So, And, you know, the... The, the knowledge that I have on barrels is just comes from all of those experiences. Yep, which is a great place to get knowledge because it's real life. And it and it yeah yeah there are differences between between small cal, medium cal, large cal barrels. But you know once you understand kind of what the what the you can call them boundary conditions are. What mm-hmm. what are you pushing through it? What's the pressure? What are the, what's the band material? It it uh you can you can make some conclusions yeah with with what what you have in, uh, for information well let's let's talk about manufacturing so you start with this blank rod of steel and how do we turn that or or other material i guess but how do you turn that into a barrel yeah so the first thing you do is gun drill okay and i would i would i would bet big chunk of money most of the guys who are building gun barrels, gun drill from the chamber to the muzzle. Okay. Okay. If you want to keep the barrel straight, when you start peeling stuff off the outside, if you wanted to keep the muzzle straight, which it's important to keep the muzzle straight, we'll talk about that in a minute, Mm -hmm. you'd be better served probably to drill in the other direction. Okay. Drill from the muzzle to Towards the chamber. the chamber. Okay. Yeah. So the reason it's important to keep the muzzle straight is that's where the bullet's going the fastest. And and if you have a, let's just say, a discontinuity in straightness, that causes the barrel to, the bullet to accelerate laterally, which oh. puts a load on the bullet, which changes the pointing vector. Mm-hmm. So it's really important for things to be straight near the muzzle. In in the 2003-2008 time frame, I got a chance to look at a pile of 120, I'm sorry, 20 millimeter barrels, uh, literally hundreds of them. And um, 
one of the things we tried to get the manufacturer to do was to drill them from the muzzle towards the towards the chamber. While I was involved, we didn't get them to do that, but I went back subsequently, and that's the way they're drilling them now. Okay. So those those barrels are made in a little different manner. Okay. And and what they'll do is they'll do the gun drill, and then they'll check where the center of the hole is in the barrel via an ultrasonic sensor. They'll put grind spots on the outside of the barrel, and then they'll straighten to those OD grind spots. Mm-hmm. So that's that's something that's interesting. You never hear you never hear of a small cow guy doing that. No, you and do not. Just, yeah, they don't. And but that's what has to happen. What has to go on in twenty millimeter? Okay. So um, part of the part of the procedure. Um, that's just the way it's done. Mm-hmm. So you you look through a, a barrel that's been gun drilled, and the surface looks very very smooth. And then they go through and they what they call hone. They take a few thousands off using a special cutter, and that's to get the inside surface as smooth as possible. Yeah, like glass. Before yes, before you do any other subsequent operations, and that's that's appropriate whether you're going to do single point tooling, you're going to do broaching, or you're going to do button rifling, mm-hmm. or even if you're going to do hammer forging. All okay. everybody plunks a hole through it and then hones. Okay. So that's that's you need a consistent place from which to start. Right. And that's that's important. Yeah. And you want it to be as straight as possible. And I can imagine that there's all kinds of tools and technology just for doing that gun drilling portion that I mean, if you take a 36-inch or a 30-inch blank to, to punch a hole yeah. through it that's straight, that takes some significant Yeah, and in, in, in my book, I have pictures of small-cal gun drill and a medium-cal gun drill, and they're quite different. Okay. They're quite different. The small-cal gun drill is just basically, it's a rod with a, you can, you can say, a 90-degree cut taken out of it to remove the chips and... and um. And there's another hole drilled in it to uh, push uh, cutting fluid. Oh, yeah, they're flushed. Sure. Yeah, to push cutting fluid in. The the medium cal gun drill is a very different animal. It's mm. got several cutting surfaces. Yeah, well, it's probably removing, obviously, a lot more material. Yeah, it, it, and it has to. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, to. if you guys listening want to see those photos and get all kinds of other information, that's in Ammunition Demystified, uh, Jeff's book. Uh, check that out on Amazon. Uh, get you a copy of that. It is legitimately the non-Bubba's guide for sure. Uh, but yeah, check those uh, those photos out and like I said, a host of this information and a bunch of others. The Hornady CX Copper Alloy Expanding Bullet. CX bullets feature the advanced heat shield tip that resists aerodynamic heating and provides a consistently high BC. Hard-hitting and deep-penetrating, CX bullets are constructed of rugged monolithic copper alloy that retains 95% or more of their original weight for devastating terminal performance. Available in factory-loaded ammunition as well as component bullets for reloaders. CX bullets from Hornady. So in terms of uh, the the actual cutting of the rifling, Mm -hmm. options are single-point tool, broach, Button rifle, hammer forge, electrochemical machining. So, um, 
single point tool basically there's a holder there's a there's a cutter that's that fits into the holder they drag it through in a spiral motion and then they index it depending on how many what number of lands and grooves are being made okay and and that's kind of really 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 old school is it it, it is, is the original it is the original method by which barrels were made okay with and rifling among the rifling method is that one preferred because around here like in our accuracy lab for our match rifles we really opt for stainless single point cut barrels and and i would tell you that um it's it's probably just fine okay okay um i i don't see any difference from a from a manufacturing or a group size perspective between that and say a brooch okay and the 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 brooch cutting that i've seen basically there's a stack and it goes from just let's just say land diameter all the way up to just shy of groove diameter in half thou increments mm. and so they go they 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 walk through progressively changing the brooch on each pass okay and it cuts if you have four lands and grooves, it cuts all four grooves at the at same once. at the same time. Okay, and so that's just the way the way broaching is done. Yeah, and it still is cutting the material just that like a single point only. The, yes, all the way around. Correct, and there and there's you know the all the cutting angles have to be specific for the material being machined. Okay. Okay. Uh, Button rifle, basically, there's a, a carbide, I hate to use the word button, a carbide. Um, yeah, button's yeah. a pretty good one. Button's a good one. Okay. Button's a good one. With the with the lands in, dug into the OD of the, of the button. Okay. And you're, when you, you can either push it or pull it through the, through the bore. It's designed to be an interference fit, and you and you, as a result, you move material mm -hmm. as that as that button goes through. People that I've seen that do button rifling don't just cram that carbide button through the barrel with some lubricant. What they do is they'll plate the interior surface with another metal, copper, for instance. And that prevents the the button from seizing. Oh, okay. To the to the to the barrel blank. Got it. Okay. So the stresses are really really high. Yeah. And if you don't if you don't if you don't plate it with a lubricious metal, you you you're having a bad day. Yeah. Gall it up and yep. seize it up in and, there, and it's and it'll stick. I can imagine the amount of force required to. I think pulling would be easier, but. I don't know. Uh, p with pulling, with pulling, you don't have to worry about the thing wandering quite so much. Mm -hmm. But yeah, interesting. And I've to to be fair, like I said, we you know in our accuracy lab, we only use uh, uh, cut rifled barrels. Personally, I've purchased some button rifled barrels. I have factory rifles that are yep. button rifled, and I've had some some pretty amazing accuracy uh, out of a button rifled barrel. Mm -hmm. um, I hadn't seen any problems with it personally. Um, the only thing that has happened miles uh as you know one of our engineers uh was 
thread in a muzzle and the barrel might not have been stress relief properly because as soon as you relieve the material for the thread diameter, the muzzle diameter inside uh, opened up a little bit. Okay. And the barrel didn't shoot, so you had to cut it off and just didn't Try, thread those. And, 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 <laughs> and forget about threading the muzzle. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, from a heat treat standpoint, the barrels that I've seen being heat treated, they, they put them in a, a, a special fixture and they'll, they'll drop them down into a deep furnace so the, so the bores are pointed straight down so that there's no temperature differential between the top and the bottom of the barrel that would, would exist if you did them sideways. Okay. Okay. So yep. there's, there's a, a little, a few secrets to the, yeah. to the heat treat. A critical part of making a barrel, I'm sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Hammer forge, uh, you know that those that that is a method by which you just pound the snot out of the out of the barrel blank and you form it into uh, into a barrel, and that's been around literally since World War II. The Germans did it with their uh, MG42 barrels. Okay, and, and typically it requires lower carbon content, um, but. When they're done with those things, the really small grain structure, the the those barrels last forever in the day. I mean, they're they're very good. Really, it's an ex, it's an enormously loud process. Yeah, so the 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 factory I was in was making uh, forty millimeter grenade launcher barrels for oh, Mark cool. for Mark nineteen. Yeah, uh, electrochemical machining. So this. Electrochemical machining, it would be used specifically with high hardness steels. Okay, like that tool steel you were talking the about. The D6AC is 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 uh, is machined using electrochemical machining. Basically, what's going on there is they plug plug the barrel after having put an anode through it with an insulator on the outside and. Also, in the outside of that insulator, they've machined in the rifling profile that they want. Okay. Okay? So it could be constant twist, could be gain twist. You think of it. They can do it. They can do it. Oh, that's Basically, cool. okay? So after that, they've, they've put the anode into the, into the barrel. They plug the ends, and then they've got um, ports by which they introduce, basically, it's saline. It's 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 water, it's water with a lot of salt in it. Okay. And then they they put they put one electrode on the barrel, one on the anode. They and and they run the the um, electrolyte through the barrel to remove material. Mm. Okay. That's pretty remarkable. That that is and, and so that that. Material removal depends on amp counts, amp amp minute, amp hour counts. So they'll, and if you're not careful about it, you can you can really mess things up. But typically, what's done is they'll change the direction of flow during the machining process to make the bore diameters consistent. Okay. So if they just go in one direction. You know, you've removed material up here. Right. You can't remove so much down there yep. because you've got chips in the in the in the bath. Interesting. So that's that's how that's done. 
Never heard of that before, electromechanical machines. So that's, that's um, well, there's another way to do electrochemical machining. And again, that's, those, both, of, both methods are identified in, in my book. Um, there's also moving mandrel where they do the same sort of thing, but the mandrel moves as, it's being, as the material is being uh, removed off the inside of the barrel. It's crazy what people can dream up to do and how precise it can be. It truly is. Love it. So there's another thing here called autofrittage. Autofrittage is a method for improving fatigue life, particularly for larger caliber guns. Okay. And, you know, for specific small cal applications, there's really no reason it couldn't be used. Basically, what that is is... Filling the barrel with some sort of hydraulic fluid and making those pressures high enough to yield the inside surface of the barrel. Okay. Really, really, yeah. really high. Incredibly high. Yeah. Um, it can be done by hydraulic pumps. It can be done by actually dropping the barrel. Okay. Okay. So you've got you've got this plunger stack and and you drop it and you can drive the pressures that way if it's a really big barrel. Sure, yeah, with okay, enough just weight. Putting that, yeah, just yeah. putting that out there. Um, so so basically, what that does is it puts the inside surface of the barrel into residual compression. When you fire it. That thing expands just a little bit. So if you get a crack that develops, that crack is going to start to wander through. We'll cover that in a little bit. But that's part of the fatigue problem. If you put the inside surface in residual compression, it takes longer for those cracks to wander through and make, oh, okay. the, make the barrel crap out. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's... That's how autofrittage does its job. Interesting. Composite fiber wrap. We um, we talked a little bit about that earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a good way to reduce weight. Yeah, for sure. Does it improve stiffness? I'm skeptical. I okay. think I think the layups have to be correct for it to do that. Okay. And even at that, from a physical dimension standpoint, I'm not sure you'd make any gains. Interesting. I really like them. We like them here simply because we, a lot of us hunt suppressed. Sure. And it, you, you want to go with a light barrel, you got to go with a small contour of steel, but you go with plus, carbon fiber. Plus, plus you got that other slug of, of material out on the end yeah, of the barrel. So, so you can shoulder a suppressor up to it and, and they've generally shot well for us here, to be quite honest with you. They've shot really, really well. I honestly, I know practically nothing on how they're made other than I see carbon fiber on there. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So if it were, if it were me mm-hmm. making the barrels, I think what I'd be inclined to do would be to take the blank OD turn, make the composite wrap, then gun drill, and then do the, do the, put the rifling in. That's okay. me. That's me. Mm-hmm. So there's, um, there's some, Potential problems with that approach, but you know, I'm, I'm sure these guys have got it figured out. Yeah, they point. seem to. I mean, there's a bunch of them on the market. Um, 
that are out there, at least on the carbon fiber world. And I'm sure in your medium and large cal stuff, there might be other different composites, but in, uh, you know, just off the top of my head, there's proof research, uh, carbon six, uh, Christensen arms. There's a bunch of them out there that, that do the carbon fiber barrel and, and generally shoot really, really well. And okay. great for hunting. Yeah. 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 If you need something light, that's the way to go. Certainly. Agreed. Certainly. Okay. Rifling considerations and geometry. First thing I have on here is forcing cone angle. So um, in the early 2000 timeframes, we got the opportunity to um, fill a little bit with some alternate barrel materials okay. in 7.62. And um, one of the things we did look at, because we didn't know, didn't know a whole lot about how the bullet was going to interact with this alternate material. One of the things we did was push them on an Instron machine through um, barrel sections. Okay. And we changed, we changed the forcing cone angle. Right. And interestingly, the shallower forcing cone angle had higher push forces, peak push forces, okay. not too surprising, but it also had lower peak push force variability. Oh, which so, is probably what so. You're it's, after. it's like from an interior ballistics repeatability standpoint, the lower forcing cone angles were definitely the thing you'd want. Okay, and you know, you, you go to Sammy, you kind of parse through, you know, what the forcing cone half angles are, and and it's like there's a kind of a sweet spot between one and one and a half. Almost everybody is in that. There's a few smaller. There's a truckload bigger, mm-hmm. um, if, if, and and from an interior ballistics repeatability standpoint, repeatable push force or push pressure mm-hmm. is kind of key to making the pressure time curve repeatable, which is key to making the velocity repeatable. So if you had to pick. You'd pick a shallower forcing yeah. cone. and when you're in the business of, say, shooting stuff far away, if you're a target shooter or ELR shooter, something like that, that muzzle velocity variation can really cause problems with you on target, you know, north of 1,000 yards, you really, north of 800 yards, you'll start to see that. And so that forcing cone angle, didn't know that was such a critical part. And yeah, you look through Sammy, anything, not anything, but a whole bunch of them, these, like you said, a truckload has yeah, a little bit steeper angle that was designed a long time ago. You look at the modern design cartridges, all of our cartridges, for example, usually have a degree and a half. Yeah, so we pushed we pushed um, cup and core bullets. It wasn't, it wasn't a copper cup and core. It was a copper-plated steel cup Okay. and a lead core. And we also pushed monolithic copper bullets through the barrel. And... Generally speaking, the peak, the peak push force for the copper bullets. I'm sorry, peak peak push force for the lower forcing cone angle was about fifteen twenty percent higher than it was for the steeper one. Mm. Was this a one and a half versus two and a half? But but the the variability. Was was about cut in half. Wow! And so that I mean, from a percent percent wise, we're you know we're talking the variability would be about in the neighborhood of um, 
Best case, about 5%. Okay. Might be as high as 10, depending on what sort of bullet you're pushing. Okay. But but definitely the, the, the lower, the shallower forcing cone angle is definitely preferred. Wow. Did not know that was so critical. That's, yeah, uh, for those listening, you're ordering a custom reamer or you're looking at getting a, a certain cartridge jump on Sammy, take a look at the cartridge chamber drawings. And uh, that might be a consideration. And, and, and as far as I'm concerned, as long as you don't have an interference when the when the cartridge is seated in the chamber and, and the bolt closed, I think you're fine. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, you, you look at the old 300 wind mag and there's this bucket, basically, <laughs> to catch <laughs> yeah. the bullet. Yeah. And... And yeah, so that could be that could be done a whole lot better in my opinion. Well, you mentioned the 300 wind mag. Yeah, it's got a uh, a throat diameter of 315 thou, and I forget the angle, but like you said, it it is like a bucket. You just yeah, it's yeah. like a catcher's mitt ready exactly. to catch the bullet into the exactly. rifle. Exactly, exactly. Uh, consistency of land and groove dimensions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I I did some analysis actually for a small cal company. Small cal uh, firearm company on the land and groove dimensions. The groove. We didn't seem to worry about too much. Okay. Um, oh, it's going to leak. Oh, yeah, it's going to leak. They're they're all they all leak. Mm-hmm. Um, but the land dimensions are critical because as the bullet gets engraved, now you've plastically displaced material on the OD of the bullet. If the land somehow gets bigger as you go further down barrel, that bullet can wobble. So that. Oh, so that okay. bullet can tip in bore, and that that sets up what we would call balloting. Yep, transverse motion of the bullet relative to the to the center line of the barrel. Um, done a lot of work on that sort of analysis over the years. Um, and small cow bullets are kind of kind of a um, kind of an odd odd thing from a. From a let's engrave the outside, they're fairly plastic. But from a balloting perspective, does this thing bend in bore? They're pretty stiff. So it's kind of a a bit of a conundrum yeah, from, from an analytic from an analytical standpoint. Um, so it's 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 important that that those cons- that the particularly the land dimensions stay consistent. That makes makes a lot of sense, though, when you think about it. I'm mean, sure. Yeah. And and when you buy a custom barrel, they're la- they've they've lapped it. So right? it's so be... it's it ought to be consistent. Yeah, okay. Number of lands and grooves. Um kind of a small swing there. I mean not much not much to worry about. The 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 width, the relative width of the two driving the driving um I'm sorry, the land yes. versus the groove. That's an important thing. You look at um, my my least favorite cartridge, three hundred blackout. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that that has a very fast twist barrel, mm-hmm. and it also has very narrow lands and wide grooves. Like, really? Do you want it to shoot good? <laughs> yeah. So so the fast twist barrel is an attempt to help out with stability subsonic when you're firing subsonic bullets right and i think whether it does or not it is probably open to debate i've actually worked on 300 blackout for some folks over the years and um let's just say i've seen some very 
hard to explain things when it comes to targeting. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, very bizarre. And I, I'm afraid I can't go into okay, it more, more than that. I won't but, pressure you. But, but kind of the idea is that if the land were wider, hmm? the bullet could would tip less in bore. That makes, yeah, makes sense. Okay. You've got more purchase on and the And if bullet. the twist were slower, for a, a given amount of in-bore yaw, you would have a lower angular rate at muzzle exit, and you would have smaller groups. Smaller dispersion. So, so, I mean, it's kind of a, there's a lot going on there. There may be a way to fix it. Okay. We're, we won't give anything away yet. Fair enough. Okay. Um, standard rifling, you know, kind of square lands. Yeah, that, that's kind of like your standard six groove. Your standard four groove or six groove. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody and their brother makes those and likes them. Um, typically, you'd like to see the the driving surface be um, perpendicular to the to the idea of the barrel. Okay, to push as directly on the bullet to to cause the spin to. To, to spin the bullet. Um, some guys put a little relief angle in there. That's We're fine with that. Um, no issues. No issues yeah, with it's that. It's standard for it, a reason. It's, it's standard for a reason. It's, it's how... how it, so if you're going to change that, you have to change the, change the, the, the side of the cutter. Mm-hmm. And... And that sometimes gets to be a little problematic. So Okay. Okay. I'm really excited about this next one here because there's been, I don't know, a lot of, yeah, myth and dogma po- around po- this. Poly- polygonal slash 5R? Yeah, the 5R, the mythical yeah, 5R um, rifling. Um, yeah, so my understanding of 5R is basically you've just got five, five lands and grooves, and whether or not the sides are, are, are perpendicular or, or t- tapered in, I think... Most folks who are making 5R taper them in. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about tapering them is if you think about the bullet tipping in bore uh, over a land, as it goes deeper, you're picking up more area, which would tend to push the bullet back towards the center or not let it go as far when, it, go com- as far, yeah, when it comes to tipping. Interesting. Okay. Uh, polygonal? Um, I've done work with polygonal with, um, U S military and, and again, it's in, it's in the book. The, the polygonal seems to have an advantage in terms of shooting smaller groups so for a given twist. Okay. So, and, and I don't ha- I didn't have a barrel drawing, so I don't know that what the dimensions are, Sure, but, um, it was, it was, there was a, I'm going to say in the neighborhood of a 10%, 10% um, advantage. Wow. That's market. About a, about a 10% advantage with okay. polygonal. Really? Pre- compared to, to standard, land, standard lands and grooves. That's pretty awesome. So if you're going with a custom barrel. You know, that might be, if you're looking for accuracy, which most of us are, that might be a big right. consideration. And the other, the other factor with the, with the polygonal is they tend to not foul as easily mm. as a standard. I mean, standard land and groove, I mean, the reason they foul is you're pushing like hell 
on the side of the bullet because you've you've made this channel in the outside and that little tiny surface because of the stress and the friction that you're putting on the bullet to spin it that melts the surface on the bullet that's why stuff gets left behind mm -hmm. that's why it fouls okay okay so if you if you spread that out it's not going to foul. You're going to have much. less fouling. Sure. So that sounds like a win all the way around. Yep. Um, I we we're going to skip that that one there. Okay. Constant twist, constant twist. I think we're, um, basically whatever angle you start with is the angle you end with. Yeah. Pretty simple. Almost all small cal barrels are made that way. Yeah. I was going to say that is kind of that the is, standard. That is the standard. Now. Medium cal, virtually every gun out there is a gain twist. Mm. Almost all of them. Now, we're, there are differences in the bullets. We'll talk about that in a minute. Large cal, artillery, there are two flavors. I mean, not artillery, large cal. There are two flavors. There's smooth bore. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. Right. And then there's, and then there's usually constant twist. Okay. Um. That's just kind of the way things are done. Uh, constant twist minimizes the amount of wear on the driving surface. Okay? Okay. And so that's another reason it's used. Gain twist is used in medium caliber for very specific reason. If you employ a gain twist, you usually start at some lower angle. And it could be an intermediate number, could be zero angle at the origin of rifling. And then the rifling angle changes by some mathematical progression till you get to the muzzle. There's sinusoidal, there's parabolic, there's exponential gain twist. There's, so there's different flavors. Again, those are covered in the book. Mm -hmm. um, The reason that you would use a gain twist is to prevent the driving surface from failing if you have some erosion in the forcing cone. So if you look at medium caliber bullets, they have a very short and distinct, discrete portion of the bullet that engages the rifling. And if, if your cartridge length is fixed, and there's some erosion in the forcing cone, what happens is the bullet leaves the cartridge case, and then it might be doing an appreciable velocity by the time the rifling is engaged by the, the driving surfaces. Okay. Okay. And that makes the, the farther, the, the larger the erosion, the higher the velocity, the higher the torque spike as the band starts to engrave. Yep. And at some point, you can get to the get to a situation where you can make make the torque go high enough to actually strip that band right off. Oh wow! So that's why that's why me, primarily medium caliber guns have gain twist rifle. Oh, it's just easier they, on the bullet. It's easier on the rotating band specifically. Okay. So if you if you if you were to Depending on the application, if you're going to fire 
any spin-stabilized bullet, you might go with what we would call an intermediate gain twist. So you start at, let's say your exit angle is 7 degrees, you might start at 3.5, 3, something like that. Okay. Just so that you cut down on the torque spike when there's, when there's some erosion in the forcing cone. For other applications, for instance, if you're firing a, uh, um, a long rod, oh. those, those bullets don't like to be spun at full spin rate. This, their structures are so delicate they can't tolerate it. So you'd really like to be able to not spin them very fast at all at, at, if you can manage it. Mm-hmm. And so for those bullets where you want to keep the torque input to the bullet low is right at peak pressure where the coupling is going to be highest because you've got this band that you're squeezing on. And if the rifling angle is low, you get low, low, low spin coupling. So that's kind of why you'd use gain twist. Um, in small cal, yeah, this is where the rubber meets the road. There's uh, more people small doing cow, it. Yeah, so so you could you could conceivably do the same thing in small cow, provided the jacket is sufficiently robust, structurally okay. robust, to handle the rifling angle change as the bullet goes down through the barrel. The thing you would want to worry about is. Let's just say the back end of the bullet relative to the rifling is fixed. If you change the front end, you're going to try and twist that jacket yeah. open. And from a, from a, we don't want to puff a lead at the, at yeah, right. outside you the, rip outside, the jacket off. Yeah, at the outside of the muzzle. That's one of the reasons you would tend to, let's just say, back off on the amount of gain for a small cow barrel. Okay, so something like if you wanted to exit at eight, you might start at six and a half or seven. And certain certainly that would be that would be an option. Or not six and a half or seven. Excuse me, nine or nine and a half rather. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So a slower slower twist. Is there a dispersion advantage or disadvantage that you've ever seen? So so in medium caliber, there actually was now. This is, of course, in the tactical gun, the GAU-8, fired from the A-10 aircraft. It fired some very aggressive burst schedules, and the barrels got awfully hot, and they were thermally expanded by a large amount, like 10,000ths of an inch. Mm -hmm. What they found when they first fielded that, that, that gun was that the barrel life was just not acceptable. It was they were replacing barrels at um, at um, I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember the number and I'm can't, I'm drawing a blank at the moment, but the the just too often it was yeah. it was too often because the barrels were getting too hot, the the bullets were body engraving. So so what wasn't supposed to be engraved was getting engraved, mm-hmm. and the and the high contact stresses w- were flattening the lands of the barrel and it and it and that's what was reducing the barrel life what they ended up doing they did a three-year study with the air force changing materials changing 
surface treatments, changing rifle geometry, numbers of lands and grooves. What they ended up doing was going with an intermediate gain twist, going from, instead of constant 9.9 degrees, they went from, I think it's 6 degrees up to 9.9 degrees. Okay. And that moved the contact point at the forward borelay of the projectile and prevented the land flat, prevented the body engraving and prevented the land flattening. Mm. So that was the solution to that problem for medium caliber. Interesting. And small cal stuff yet to be? Um, I I did work on one and it didn't pan out as well as I would have liked for reasons we won't go into. Sure. Um, but, but I think it has, I think it has the ability to, to improve things particularly with thermally expanded barrels. So machine guns would be a good application. Okay. Probably for small cal sniper. I I I think I think you got to go do the test. Yeah. I just got to see. I think you got to go do I think you got to build them and go do the test. I would be very interested to see that test cuz we see them at, you know, long range matches. We see some people running gain twists and doing and quite who's, well. And who's making those barrels? Uh Bartline makes a one that I'm, I don't know who else does. I'm sure there's many out there. Off the top of my head, I know Bartline does it, and they can they'll make you whatever you want. So oh yeah, if you want to go from oh care, careful what you wish for, yeah, right? <laughs> if you want to go from twelve to eleven yeah. or twelve to seven, they could do whatever you ask for. Interesting. Okay, yeah. I I might have to look into that. Yeah, might have to look into that. Okay, straightness. How straight is straight enough? Oh my God. Question of the day. Question of the day. Well, so. So in that 2003, 2008 time frame in 20 millimeter, um, we looked at some barrels that that were particularly horrible, <laughs> and 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 some of them it was a kind of a head scratcher. It was like, how could you make it so crooked? And and it turned out it was entirely dependent on the on the process, and and I think what was going on was. Again, they were drilling from the, at the time, they were drilling from the chamber to the muzzle. And I think what happened was there were long chuck fingers that grabbed the blank. And they, what they would do is insert the, insert the barrel into the chuck. And then whatever had to get done in terms of bending the bar to get it in the, in the tailstock. Oh, that's just what they did. Yeah. And, and so that. The one, the one that kind of kicked off the investigation was no, notably not straight. Yeah, notably. so crooked you couldn't make it that crooked on accident. Um, well, <laughs> that is what happened. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, so that, um, that barrel had targeting problems, but not dispersion problems. If you look, and, and again, it's a Gatling gun. Freely admit those aren't sniper rifles. Right. But, but the kind of the, the, you know, the dispersion out of those, the, for those bullets out of those guns, maybe seven or eight times what it is for a small cow bullet out of a, out of a test fixture. Yeah. Okay. So it's big. Mm-hmm. It's big. But the dispersion out of the crooked barrel was virtually unchanged out of the uh, out of uh, compared to a straight barrel 
Wow. And it, you would think, wouldn't I would think it wouldn't work that way anyway. Yeah, yeah. And so analytically, I was like, well, let's try this analytically, see what happens. We got essentially the same results. It was a little bit bigger, but you'd have to fire a truckload of bullets to statistically prove the difference between the straight barrel and the crooked mm-hmm. barrel. So the whether or not the barrel is straight enough depends, in, in my opinion, entirely on the construction of the bullet. There was another, another job I was involved with. Got some notes here. Give me, let, me figure sure. out, let me figure out what year it was. This is in 2012, so it's 10 years ago. And this is on 5.56. And we're dealing with a penetrator bullet, yada, yada, yada. And we had two barrels. We had a good one and one that met the drawing still, but the dispersion was kind of horrible. And we sent them away to have the straightness measured. And they took three passes through it with the straightness measurement device. And this is a laser straightness measurement device. So it's not just a mechanical yeah. thing. And and it and we looked at it and the results came back and the results were shocking in that the barrel that shot better dispersion had a distinct kink right at the muzzle. Hmm. And and I started thinking about that a little bit. And I think what happened was the bullet would run down the barrel. The, the steel penetrator would get biased to one, one side as a result of that kink. And every bullet that came out had the same, same. The same bias. Mm. The, so, so it shot smaller groups than the one that was straight. It was, yeah. So the barrel that shot poor dispersion was more crooked. Was more crooked near the muzzle, and it wow. was just it just we did we did other testing with that, and it was only because of the bullet construction that we got that result. We built bullets using using an aluminum insert in place of the steel one. That one that that bullet didn't care what it what you shot it out of. Yeah, it didn't it. It shot good dispersion no matter what. Interesting. No matter what. It was just the one with the, the heavy front end yeah. that, that, had, uh, that had the preferred disper- better dispersion out of the, out of the non, noticeably non-straight yeah. barrel. So the, the bullets you're shooting might have more to say about how straight your barrel is and if they care or not. It, absolutely. Abs- and that's, that's kind of the takeaway here. I mean... Whether or not barrel straightness matters from a group size perspective really depends on the bullet construction, I think. Makes and, sense. you know, most of the target bullets that, that, that are being produced today, they have fairly lightweight front, low-density front ends. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got plastic or you've got aluminum. You've got some big uh, air pockets, in, you know, in the jacket yep. behind, behind the nose. Those bullets tend to not be too sensitive to barrel straightness, and I think that's kind of why they, why you're able to shoot the sorts of groups that you can shoot with. Interesting. Okay. That is good to know. That is good insight. The Hornady Auto Charge Pro. 
providing precise, customizable powder dispensing in an easy-to-use, space-saving unit. The new modernized load cell is precise to within 0.1 grain. The AutoCharge Pro offers customizable trickle speeds for various powder types, as well as custom trickle time settings. With a smaller footprint than competing brands, the AutoCharge Pro still offers a large powder capacity hopper. The AutoCharge Pro from Hornady. So benign versus problem bore straightness issues. Um, so, so again, with the, the 20 millimeter investigation, we learned we learned that when you're measuring straightness, if you're doing it on a barrel that's fixtured horizontally, you have to take into account gravity droop. Sure you do. Yep. Okay, so those 20 millimeter barrels were about seven feet long. Oh. About seven feet long. And if you supported them at the aft end and at the muzzle, the max deviation of the bore center line in the middle of the barrel was about 35 thousandths of an inch. Whoa. And pe I mean, people don't think about no. that. I mean, it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to grab the barrel yeah. and, and just let gravity take over. It's going to bend. Mm -hmm. if, I mean, like it's, like it's fixtured in the rifle, right? You've got it held at the back end Yep. and gravity takes over. It's going to bend. Interesting. It has to bend. And and how much it bends depends on what, what it's what's its diameter and what's its length mm -hmm. and what material you're making it from. Yeah, that's crazy. That on a seven foot foot barrel, which is longer than this table, that there'd be thirty five thousandths of an inch, which is almost big enough to see on a ruler. Like you wouldn't even need a set of calipers to measure that. I mean, that's yeah. Yeah. That's, so we measured we measured bore center lines on that project. We measured bore center lines. With a laser, and and near the muzzle, we measured them with a thing called a wiggler, and basically, that's a a a, a, a steel rod with a ball on one end, and a, and a dial indicator on the other end, and you'd insert it in the barrel, and you'd spin the barrel, and you'd watch and you'd watch the okay. dial indicator. That's what that's what the wiggler is Got about. It. So that's how you'd measure it. There are guys who make laser measurement equipment mm -hmm. and and for small cal barrels particularly they measure them standing up vertically so gravity's not a factor yeah like, which makes sense yeah makes a truckload of sense yeah okay so we 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 put that to bed okay barrel support boundary conditions mode shapes okay so there are I'm gonna I'm gonna skip down below there for a second. Okay. First, first, second, third mo uh, bending mode shapes. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna have you guys put some put some images, and I'll have okay. to send them to you. No problem. But basically, the first the primary bending mode. If you took like a paint stick or a yardstick, and you held it on the edge of the table. And you just bend, put put a load on that at the end of that stick. That's the first bending mode. Okay. Okay. The second bending mode would be the you know same restraint on the aft end, and if you took it and you put your thumb on it and bent it. Okay. Thumb thumb and fingers, and you bent it, so it would go up, and then back down through the through the the initial center line. Okay. Yep. 
there's another mode above that. Okay. And so those bending frequencies can sometimes line up with the bullet spin rate. I've just updated my on my website. Bulletology.com. Bulletology.com, uh, uh, an article on barrels, and it talks about those mode shapes. Okay. And compares whether or not those mode shapes, those mode shape frequencies are coincident with the spin frequencies. Hmm. Okay. And I looked at it for both 300 WinMag and 300 PRC. Different because different twist, twist rate yeah eight and a half compared to a 10 that's right and and it looks to me like using closed form approximations for the for the bending frequencies that unless the barrel is really really short which is something you wouldn't do with a magnum cartridge right or it's really really long like 35 inches mm-hmm. you're probably not going to get into too much trouble okay so so the 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 whole notion of you want to call it harmonics mm-hmm. is really not a factor. Different thing that arises due to lack of bore straightness, a thing called forced vibration. So if the barrel center line is not drilled coincident with the OD of the barrel. Mm-hmm. As the bullet passes through it, two things happen. The first is you put a bending moment on the barrel where that where that center line is not co- coincident because of the load being applied off of the center of the of the barrel. Okay. Okay. So there's that. The other thing that you do is as the bullet runs down the tube if there's a, a lateral displacement of the bore that causes the bullet to accelerate laterally, that puts a load on the barrel that causes the barrel, barrel to vibrate. So people call it harmonics. It's really not harmonics. It's really a forced vibration. Interesting. Okay. So this is controversial because you're going to set the internet I, on fire. I, I, I knew... I, you had to know there was going to be some heresy here. Yeah, right. So, so it's really, it's really a forced vibe. What goes on when, when, when the barrel moves, it's really as a result of a forced vibration. It's not a harmonic. Interesting. Okay. Um, how, how that manifests itself, how important that is, depends on the details of the bullet, the barrel, the bore center line. The taper, I mean, all of those things play into it. Got so, it. free float, free float versus forearm support. You know, a lot of a lot of factory rifles come with some sort of little pads up on the. Yep. And and that's an attempt to cut down on the variability in, in pointing as a result of the force vibration. Like, you look at everybody's precision rifles. How many have the front front end support? Zero. There you are. Yep. There you are. Okay. Effective gas block, muzzle brake, flash hide, or suppressor. Mm. Yeah. Start hanging stuff off the end of a barrel. 
All right. So more ready. get ready for some more heresy here. Oh, boy. All okay. right. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. So gas blocks can do a couple of things, and neither none of them are good. <laughs> <laughs> good start. Okay. The gas blocks, you know, I've seen data on machine gun barrels where they use not a clamp approach to fixing the gas block, but a press-fit approach. And they're, yes, they're selectively assembled. And basically, they go through and they hone to the dimensions that, that are required. And, and, oh, yeah, it's a thousandths interference. Boink, push it on there. Mm-hmm. What that does under the gas block is makes the, bear, the bore constrict just a little bit. Just a little bit. bit. Hmm. Okay. And so if you have a bullet that's pretty plastic in the radial compression direction, You cram through that restricted section. You re- you just either squish the bullet or remove material. Pick one. It doesn't matter yeah. which. And now you get past that. Now you've got clearance. Yep. Now the now the bullet can do whatever the yeah. the heck it wants, depending on where it was pointed to start with. Okay. So there's that problem. Okay. That's not good. No. No. The other thing that happens with a gas block. You bleed gas through this little tiny port into this into this reservoir, either above or below the barrel, depending on what the setup looks like. Mm-hmm. And you've got you've got nothing going on in the front end, and you've got something going on in the back end. And whether it's whether it's a a gas tube or whether it's an op rod, it doesn't matter too much. Something's going to move. Well, that's an unbalanced load. What that does is bend the barrel mm. at that spot. Yeah, both of those things not desirable. And it's remarkable, uh, Preston's putting together a gun just this morning, you saw, uh, yeah. for PRS gas gun, Miles. He's, uh, he built a, a PRS uh, gas gun. He's running, and he's, I think he's won the gas gun division in every match he shot with that gun. And it shoots particularly well. I mean, it shoots... Not just well for a gas gun. I mean, it shoots well. I forget exactly, so don't quote me, but I want to say it's inch and a half or an inch six at 200 for 20 shots. I mean, that shoots really, really that's, well. That's pretty good. Uh, and it, when you start talking about this stuff, it's remarkable that it can perform like that. Yeah, so so with the, with the bending part, there is probably an optimum position to put the gas port Mm-hmm. And that optimum position is right about where the propellant burns out. Okay. And so that's a function of the chamber volume, mm-hmm. what powder you're using, what bullet you're using. Yeah, fill in the blank. So, yeah, so so you could certainly optimize it. What that what that does is minimize the variation in pressure changes at the port. Okay. So you could probably, and and that would be important if you want to have consistent barrel pointing shot to shot to shot, not, and not in the machine gun mode. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so that that's important. To to keeping the barrel pointing consistent. Um. The, but but if you change if you change ammunition, you're hosed. Yeah, you got different propellant. You got 
Yeah. You get you got a different set of situation, different set of different powder, different bullet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, all of that affects the timing. It affects where the where the powder burns out. It's not going to end well. Right. Gosh. That. Yeah. So gas blocks. Uh, nothing but negative, but a necessary evil for that style. Of yeah. If you're gonna, if you're gonna, I mean, the the other option is to run it, run the gun with recoil and yeah. nobody likes that nobody wants to do that nobody wants to do so that. so what about the 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 Mu- other end the muzzle, business end muzzle yeah. break so i have a little bit of experience with uh 762 sniper systems with muzzle brakes and basically what they do is bend the barrel okay what they do is bend the barrel um you can install them correctly and have essentially zero effect on the group size only an effect on impact point. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So, but that has to be done correctly. Yeah. One of the things that surprises me, everybody seems to affix the muzzle brakes or the suppressors using using uh, a, a surface just behind the threads. Okay. Okay. And this is roughly analogous to... um. A similar problem that we saw with the problem 20 millimeter barrels. You know, we were trying to figure out how how do they get so crooked. One of the one of the potential sources was these barrels were chrome plated, and you put an anode through them, you electropolish, and then you plate back. Well, one of the things that you can do to keep the anode as straight as possible is to fixture them on a flat surface at the muzzle. And then pick another spot six inches back along the length of the barrel and have a, a, a tight OD fit there. Why can't the muzzle, why can't the suppressor guys do the same thing? Mm. Just a thought. Yeah. Just a thought. Okay. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's another, another method by which you could control the the positioning of the suppressor on the gun instead of trying to do, oh, you've got some V threads and then a flat surface. Are they offset? Are they tipped? You don't know. No. You don't know. So if you, it's my opinion that if you use the threads and then a close diameter OD on the barrel, ID on the suppressor, screw that down, you'd be, be probably better served. Interesting. Yeah, that just a, is just a thought. That is a, a, a remarkable thought. So you're saying, uh, in summary, though, you start hanging stuff off the muzzle as you're you're bending it's, the barrel. You're gonna you're gonna bend the barrel mm-hmm. and expect an impact point shift. Absolutely. That's that's gonna happen. Um, yeah. Harmonically, though, you're saying those those frequencies just not a not a thing for normal barrel. Harmonic. Lengths. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Force vibration? Yeah. Yeah, they affect the force vibration, absolutely. Sure. We worked on a, um, one particular force vibration problem with muzzle brakes. We worked on a balloting, sim, balloting analysis for a customer offshore, 155 millimeter. The muzzle brake was involved, long, long slender tube, fairly floppy projectile. Um, one of the things we discovered there was that for that particular combination of tube and projectile and velocity, 
it was possible for the barrel pointing vector to be in a different place between when the forward borelate of the bullet dropped off the tube and the aft one dropped off the tube. So now you have an induced angular rate yep. just due to barrel pointing changes from primarily the thing hung on the muzzle. Interesting. Yep, that's that's so that's hard I mean, to wrap your mind I, around. I'm, I'm 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 scratching my head. I don't think you can get in that kind of trouble with small cow, but it, just be aware that it's it's possible to have happen, mm -hmm. and you know go go check go check to see how the thing's fixtured. Fair enough for you. Okay, interior protective coating pluses and minuses of each. Yep, um, heating rate. We already talked about that. That's yeah. The heating rate just. <laughs> that blew my mind. You said a barrel will last about six seconds if it lasts 6,000 rounds. Yep. That's about six seconds of yeah. actual use. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, well, it, how, what else would you spend that kind of money on? Yeah, right. <laughs> that lasted that long. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. that was. Yeah. So, so um, lots of folks make barrels and they, and they nitride, put nitride finish on them. Um, nitride is kind of an interesting interesting approach for uh corrosion protection mm -hmm. um it makes the surfaces really hard which in a lot of instances is pretty beneficial the 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 problem with nitride is it really doesn't increase the melt temperature very much it it um it's an basically it's an um, uh, uh, ammonia salt bath at hot temperature high temperatures mm -hmm. and you're driving you're driving the nitrogen atoms into the atomic matrix, and it just makes the things harder, and it doesn't change the dimensions. So it's it's beneficial from that standpoint. Okay. I mean, basically, you can make the barrels to finish dimension, nitride them, and you're good. You won't yeah. you won't have any sorts of problems. Excellent. Uh, chrome plate. A fair amount of experience with chrome plate. Uh, the problem barrels had chrome plate on them. Um, basically. What happens with those barrels is you make the bar the bore dimensions a little on the large side, because then what you're going to have to do is is need to prepare them to make them chemically clean, mm. as clean as they can be. So you etch them. It takes acid, right, along with an electric current. So you're removing material there. Then hopefully you don't remove the electrodes in between etching and plating so that where it's high and one and one and one where it where it removes material more material it plates back more material yeah that just, makes sense just don't 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 defixture in between um you, you plate it back and usually what you plate back is more than what you took off so that's that's just standard procedure um we talked a little bit about straightness. One of the other th things that you've got to worry about with plated chrome plating is nodules. Always we had the ability to knock nodules off. There are little clumps of chrome that happen to stick on because you've got a little tiny whisker or something mm -hmm. or a sharp corner. Hopefully electropolish helps with you know, knocking those corners off, but um, nodules are a... Uh, um, problem when it comes to keeping the bore straight sure so um and and chrome plate 
chrome plate does increase the melt temperature. You know, its melt temperature is around 3,400 degrees Fahrenheit versus 2,800 for steel. So it's it's really a t still it's about the only approach you can take to increasing the melt temperature of the interior surface of the barrel. Okay. It's it's kind of standard procedure for just about any any barrel steel out there. Yeah, well, especially you know on the on the military side, even down to the the M4, the M16A2, uh, all of those are chrome lined. Yep. Yep. And that I'm sure that's the case for all yeah. those other bigger yeah. guns. Yeah, so so the um so all of the aircraft cannon barrels were chrome plated, all of them. Okay. The M M242, uh, Mark 44 got there eventually. <laughs> when they were first produced, they were not chrome plated. Really? Yeah. Yep. I had a I had a bit of a hand in that. Yeah, they. Um, it turns out that the increased barrel life with chrome plate depends in, uh, depends to a large extent upon what sort of band material you have, and it's better. You get better benefits with like plastic rotating bands. Mm -hmm. Metal bands don't get quite the you same. Sure, which you don't makes get sense. Quite the same benefit. So, Stellite liners, fifty cal. Uh, the M2's got a Stellite liner. Yeah. Um, I've actually watched that that insertion procedure, and and uh, basically they'll take the back end of the barrel and they'll put it in an induction heater. You know, change rapidly changing magnetic field. Yeah. They'll heat it up till it's red hot. Stuff that Stellite liner in there, then they have to rotate it to get the to get the um, the barrel lands lined up, and then they screw on a you might call it a closure screw on the chamber. Interesting. And that's and that's and that's how they that's how they insert the stellite liner. And it's it's cobalt, chrome, and molybdenum. It's very high melt temperature stuff. And and that's why the M two is the gun that everybody loves. Oh yeah. It's uh yep, it is shooting the the old modus as they call it is a mind body experience the it, first time it, you get a lay behind it, one it of those absolutely my first time my first time i was um prepping to go offshore with a, a, a failure investigation and i was they prepped me to do the headspace and timing and then they said you know you know while you're here you might as well shoot this okay fine and i'm in a completely enclosed room oh other than other than where the barrel was pointed there was kind of a tall door sized slot i was firing out through and they put me in uh plugs and muffs and a flak jacket and a helmet and it was Mind altering is out of body experience because my body did not want to be there. Yeah, it was. It was. Oh, I bet that very intense concussive. Yeah. force sitting around yeah. in there. That, that's a long. That's a long. That's thirty years ago. It's a yeah. long time ago. All right. Lastly, barrel failure modes. Um, yeah. So the thing folks worry about, at least from the military's perspective, um, excessive forcing cone wear that causes large dispersion and muzzle velocity loss. So you can see where as the as the bullet uncorks from from the cartridge case, if the 
gases can flow by the outside readily, you're going to tip the bullet mm-hmm. and you're going you're gonna to lose propulsion ability as a result of that. Right. And like, okay, so those are the kind of the big things. And for um, particularly small cow folks, that, that would be one of the big things, one of the big reasons why you would retire a barrel. Yeah. I mean, looking here at your list of barrel failures, you really don't see any failures except you start to see erratic group, causal velocity in your group, larger group, description. Yeah, yeah, group size. Yep. Um, failure to spin the bullet. We don't, again, we don't worry so much about that in small cal. Uh, and the reason for that is the small cal bullets have so much margin in terms of the wear compared to medium and large cal. Um, you really... I've, I've, I've recently become aware of one in 338, and there's a fair amount of, let's just say, forcing cone erosion <laughs> that, that leads to that. Can that be mitigated by changing the twist rate? Like, you'll go into a gain twist? I believe it can. Interesting. And that's something that ha- we would have to be at least studied and, and tested. And then lastly, fatigue. Um, critical crack depth number of cycles. So critical crack depth, imagine if you will, you're, you're firing your barrel and there's a crack on the inside surface and it, every time you fire it, that crack creeps closer and closer and closer to the outside diameter mm. of the tube. And then you fire one more shot and it pops open. Mm-hmm. That's the depth before that last shot is the critical crack depth. Yeah. Okay, so that's what that's, what that's about. The critical crack depth is sensitive to a, a, a material property called fatigue. Um, uh, oh, gosh, what's the name now? Yeah, <laughs> I went and forgotten it. Um, uh, fracture toughness. Okay. Fracture toughness. So that's a, that's a material property that they can actually test for. You know, you take a bar, you put a notch in it, you swing a pendulum, smack, does it break? How much energy do you put into that crack before it pops open? Okay. Um, so the aircraft barrels have to be lightweight. No surprise, right. right? As a result, they have to be made from materials that have high fracture toughness. Like, okay, I'm getting it, you know. Outfit that I worked for once upon a time did a test. Let's build some barrels and let's test them and we'll design them to crack at 40 rounds, at 60 rounds, at 80 rounds. And, and they built them right on the margins. Instead of 40, it cracked at 38. Instead mm-hmm. of 60, it cracked at 62. I mean, there, there, wasn't, there wasn't lots of, let's just say, margin built into whatever that whatever they happen to have decided Mm -hmm. so so when when the aircraft guys say hey you know let's we got to keep track of the number of cycles number of shots on the on these barrels so that we can replace them so that we don't lose an aircraft right pretty important stuff hugely important yeah pretty important stuff so for for you know for um Land applications, less critical. 
at least at least for armored armored fighting vehicle applications. But um, and number of cycles that's that's entirely again driven by the fracture toughness and the OD of the barrel and the idea the dimensions yeah, of the yeah. barrel and and of course the barrels are always tapered so you have to look at a couple of sections along the length when you're doing that assessment interesting that's what i got that's what you got i've i'm gonna well obviously we listen to these podcasts internally you know we review them and preston gets them edited and and then i always listen to them back so i end up listening to every podcast two or three times but this one i'm gonna have to really focus on because there's so much information there as it relates to small cow, but it was really interesting to see some of the correlation between small cow and then the medium and large cow stuff. That's remarkable. And I would have never thought that I would pay 350 or $400 for a piece of steel that would last six seconds <laughs> or five seconds or three seconds or whatever. What can I say except you're welcome? <laughs> yeah. That definitely opened my eyes up to a lot of things. And I know I'm confident our listeners are going to enjoy this very technical, deep understanding of barrels or high pressure I, vessels <laughs> I, I i certainly hope it's helped some folks uh understand a little bit more what's going on behind the curtain yeah well and, and like i said you might have set the internet on fire uh and then we'll probably do a podcast more specific to it at some point when Jaden's prepared to talk about things like barrel tuners muzzle devices and harmonics and then like you said those force vibrations and how yeah there's i mean it's almost well, it's dogma now, but it's it's kind of almost just been propagated forever as, okay, you can do a calculation on cantilevered beams and they have a harmonic frequency and that happens to your rifle barrel and you can tune it by yeah. adjusting your loading. Yeah. And you're saying that's small cow stuff. It's, it's, it's I, I think it's primarily, primarily forcing, uh, force vibration. And uh, um, can you, can you affect it with a tuner? Yeah, you probably can. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the way you'd really want to go? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm, we need to test I don't it play in out. that. I don't play in that game. So I don't, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just telling you what, what's happening from an engineering standpoint. Understood. And we appreciate that. I am excited to see some test results on tuners and, and whatever else, just to, you know, just to kind of put that whole thing to bed and see where it shakes out. Cool. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. We, can't thank you enough. And for the listeners out there, we mentioned it during the podcast, but Jeff, uh, Ammunition Demystified, that's out there. Go get yourself a copy of that and read it. Put it on the shelf. You'll, it's, a, it's a good read and it's a great reference. Um, you know, if you're a, if you're a incredibly passionate hobbyist or in the professional side of things, this is a great book to have. Like I said, it's a good read, but it's also a great reference. And then you mentioned Bulletology, which I had forgotten about, but check that website out. Uh, all kinds of nice, digestible chunks of information that are available I, out there. I update, it, I update it fairly frequently, so um, people should just check in if they haven't been there in a while. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't cost you nothing to go to Bulletology.com. Free information. We can't thank you enough for putting that kind of information out there that we can all just have. Love it. They are. Awesome. Is there anything else on barrels or anything else you got? I'm... I'm my brain's a puddle. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get you out on the road. I know you got a long drive, but I got one question for you. If you had to pick one cartridge for the rest of your life, what would you pick? Oh, good gravy. And bullet. 
I would pick um, a 165CX and cartridge. Oh, good gravy. Mm. I'd probably have to go with a 30 odd six. You can't get more classic than that. Yeah, I probably, wow. I'm just, just cause I've got, I've got so many under my belt and, and got a lot of experience. Yeah. With well, 165 grain CX bullet out of a 30 out six. I mean, you could stretch that out to maybe include brown bear, but elk deer, uh, you find cases all over. There's two dozen different propellants that you could use. That's a, that is a sound choice. I commend you on that one. That is a good choice. I, I, I once caused some crap from somebody up caribou hunting. What's the what's the ballistics engineer use? Thirty out six. Oh, that's so boring. <laughs> well, if uh, if it works, and it you does, gotta go with what works. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thanks again for for coming on the podcast. We sure appreciate having you. Thank you for having me, guys. Hopefully, and hopefully you enjoyed this deep dive on barrels. I know I learned a lot. I'm confident you guys did too. We're really uh, grateful to have Jeff be as instrumental as he has been uh, for Hornady and a great resource. We'll catch you on the next one.